Walk in the Breaking Doctrine, presented to you by the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate at the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The views expressed here are those of the individual and do not represent the views of the Combined Arms Center, U.S. Army, or U.S. Government. Hello, I'm Lieutenant Colonel Nikki Dean, and today we're digging into the Wayback Files for a little history, theory, and doctrine about a concept associated by that most contentious of wide-brim hats, the Cavalry Squadron. Our uh, topic today is Cavalry Operations Above the Brigade. With me today are three fellow Cavalry enthusiasts. We're joined today by the Maneuver Center of Excellence Commanding General, Major General Patrick Donahoe. We're also joined by Major Nathan Jennings, who's a history instructor with the U.S. Army's Command and General Staff College here at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. We're also joined by Colonel Retired, Mr. Rich Creed, the Director of the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate, CAD. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nikki. Hey, Nikki, I think it's really important at this point in this, to remind everybody that Rich Creed is a national treasure. <laughs> Sorry, I can't believe you got that in so quick. You, you're a true cavalryman. <laughs> I think it's necessary to lay some groundwork on cavalry as a formation and the evolutions of our missions. Uh, looking back, or looking at the more modern history, I'd say, about the fast, past 50 years of CAV, probably will give our listeners a little bit more historical perspective. And it's not that I don't think CAV hasn't always existed in some form or fashion. Um, and it meant to provide the commander the ability to see the battlefield ahead of the battle. But I think we probably need to snap a chalk line somewhere in our published history. And the reason why is if we don't give ourselves a more modern start in the discussion today, we're going to find ourselves wondering so far back in time that... Uh, I would be burned at the stake for wearing trousers as a woman. So if you don't mind, I'm, I'm going to start us out probably looking back at about the last 50 years or so. Looking back about 50 years to the post-Vietnam era, it seems like that is the makings of what our modern cavalry formations really look like. So starting there, uh, Mr. Creed, would you, as the man with the field manuals, give us a little background on uh, the doctrine and the definitions of cavalry missions as they evolved and, and what they are today. Yeah, sure, Nikki. Um, so we'll talk about cavalry um, and, and maybe some of the things that give it the qualities um, to be able to perform the types of mission, missions that the Army expects it to do. Uh, but cavalry was defined as a combat maneuver force of combined arms mounted uh, in ground or aerial vehicles. And the mounted in vehicles piece is important when we think about um, having the, the mobility capability that's equal to or greater than the opposition, right? So that's important to enabling um, the qualities that we need to be able to execute cavalry missions. Uh, so we say it was uniquely organized, equipped, and trained to find the enemy in order to prevent that friendly main body from being engaged under adverse circumstances, or what we would say now at positions of relative disadvantage, and then to provide within capability security for the main body. Uh, so there's two essential criteria um, or what we would call mission sets maybe for, for cavalry formations. The first is to find the enemy and develop the situation with the least force possible. And we say the least force possible, it means we want to make contact and, and, and determine what's going on in a particular situation without becoming decisively engaged and losing the initiative. Um, and then the other mission sets associated with providing reaction team and maneuver space for the main body of the friendly force. Um, both these criteria kind of fit into the principle of wars we associate with uh, uh, security uh, or economy of force, e either one. Sometimes those work out together. 
we had different historical roles for cavalry formations, and as the doctrines changed over the decades, uh, there's five or six that, that, that remain with us today. The first is conducting reconnaissance operations uh, to ascertain enemy weaknesses and strengths. Uh, another is conducting security to provide early warning and maneuver space. Again, making sure friendly forces aren't leading with our face, right? We, we, we uh, engage the enemy on our terms or the most favorable terms that we can, we can figure out. Um, we use them to cover retreats or what the Army talks in, in terms of doctrine now, retrograde operations. Um, they conduct counter-reconnaissance against like formations that the enemy might feel. So uh, you can call it countering enemy cavalry. We talk about in terms of counter-reconnaissance because it involves more than just engaging enemy like enemy formations. Um, we can use cavalry as, as a means for a counterattack because it's mobility and firepower. Um, particularly in, in terms of formations the Army used to have uh, and that the Army still does at, at the brigade level, um, they have the combat power to be able to be employed for counterattacks. Um, and then we talk about this idea of administering the, the decisive blow through uh, either isolating enemy forces uh, during a fluid operations uh, or pursuit of enemy formations that have largely been defeated up that point, but we pursue them uh, to exploit that initial military su success and end up uh, defeating them in detail. So we had these combined arms organizations uh, in every for maneuver formation from brigade to corps at some point, but they varied in size, right? So uh, for much of our careers, General Donahoe and I, uh, the cavalry formations in a brigade or a brigade combat team, we would call it now, uh, were the scout platoons within uh, the maneuver battalions. And then we experimented with a brigade reconnaissance troop for a few years and never really got that to work uh, for a lot of different reasons. Maybe we can talk about later. Uh, but the focus was those cavalry squadrons at the division level and the cavalry regiments uh, that, that were uh, core units. Um, they had two traditional roles. The first was reconnaissance. The other was security. We use, we, while we define those words, Separately, we tend to use the two words together, reconnaissance and security. Um, and those definitions have evolved over time, but they, while they've gotten longer, as for whatever reason, we tend to make our doctrinal definitions larger and our lists of qualities and characteristics longer every time we rewrite something, they really haven't changed. They just get more specific. So when we talk about reconnaissance, we say it's a mission undertaken to obtain uh, by either visual observation or other means, because we live in this multi-domain world, so there's other means other than your eyeballs or your weapon sites uh, to, to locate and then uh, make assessments about enemy formations. Um, and we also, uh, not just the enemy, but we look at terrain, right? So we want to look at traffic ability, uh, what the choke points are, where are we going to execute defile drills, again, to make sure that the main body uh, is not surprised that they know what they're moving towards and going to move through. Um, and reconnaissance is a planned thing. It's not, uh, it should never be haphazard, so it's a planned part uh, or phase of any operation. It's continuous, and we don't like to ever leave reconnaissance capabilities in reserve either. Um, when we talk about, uh, and we, we'll get back and we'll talk about fundamentals and some of these things, I think when General Donahoe and, and Major Jennings talk, um, so I'll just talk about the other big uh, bin that we, we classify uh, in terms of reconnaissance and security. That's security. 
Um, so when we, we define security as operations undertaken by a commander to provide early and accurate warning of enemy operations, to provide the force being protected with time and maneuver space within which to react to the enemy, and then develop the situation to allow the commander to effectively use, uh, employ uh, the protected force. Um, so what does that mean? Well, it means there's a little bit of a tension between am I oriented on the enemy or am I oriented on uh, friendly forces? Right, and there's always got to be a little bit. It's never an either or. There's there's uh, reasons why you have to understand both. Um, and so I, I I think I would leave it at there. Otherwise, we're just going to talk about definitions all for the rest of the hour. So we could talk about doctrine all the time. Yeah. So we, I guess we've often kind of associated the cavalry, the traditional roles of cavalry and the missions that they perform with really specific echelons and capabilities. And Nate, I know you've done quite a bit of research into the evolutions of both the structure and the mission sets. Can you give us a little bit of historical insight as to what drove the composition of some of these these combined arms formations as they were in the post-Vietnam but pre-GWAT era and what, what that means overall and what that has done for us now? Yeah, sure, uh, I can. So this is really about the Warsaw Pact. The U.S. Army recognized their problem in Europe was they had to fight for space and time uh, against a larger force that was a peer force with tier one tech. Um, and so that required these divisions over there. So we can use 1ID as a good example. It's there with, I forget, is it 7th Corps in Germany at the time? Uh, they have this problem that the Soviet horde is coming through the Fulda, through other gaps, uh, and they have to hold them off. And so now you need an independent cavalry formation out front to do that fighting, and then divisions need their own Div Cav or Division Cavalry Squadron to shape kind of their fight ahead of them. We, we might call it the, the near deep fight. Um, and so that leads the Army of Excellence reforms where they continue some modifications from road, um, kind of the 1960s where they started to form these larger cavalry organizations. Um, but it drives, it drives the development of echelon RNS, and more, more importantly, they're air ground teams that can fight. They can fight for information, they can defend, they're durable, uh, they're survivable in a way that, um, you know, previous uh, mounted organizations had not been, in the way we don't have now, by the way. Um, and so as, you know, this, the real importance here is as we're looking at a contemporary LISCO fight, it's a similar battlefield framework, uh, arguably, uh, and we now have that capabilities gap to do the, a similar uh, kind of function. You had a scale and scope thing there too, right? So you had two cores in Europe, um, and you're talking about troop lists in the hundreds of thousands, right, in, in a relatively small area. And so that context, I think, is a huge part uh, of what we're trying to do. I mean. We, Arguably, you're talking about World War II size formations um, with modern technology at the, or modern at the time, right? And so you had some luxuries in terms of force structure um, based upon a, a true operational need in a political context that I think set some conditions um, for the development of things that maybe we have a, more of a challenge now uh, showing people that we have a need for those kinds of things. Yeah, you know, Rich, I, I, what I find fascinating about the, the era that Nate's talking about is, first off, you were you were in the Army and had dark hair at that point, right? So, <laughs> yeah, that's right. But you, you saw this 
constant change of were we going to be able to really fight for information or were we going to be more stealthful in how we gain information, right? And so, you know, the the ACRs, right? So the second ACR kind of focused on the Tom pocket on the check border, right? And you had, uh, you had the 11th in Fulda, and those were really capable organizations, right? The, the regimental cavalry troop at that point, two Bradley scout platoons, six and six, two tank platoons supporting those, zone mortars, zone talk, zone, zone maintenance and recovery. You know, so, you know, 13 Bradleys, uh, nine tanks, plus, you know, plus mounted mortars, three troops abreast, and then, you know, on the regimental side, then it had its own, its own Paladin battery or 109 battery with it, right? And then you had, in the regimental structure, then you had the, the aviation uh, squadron. That organization could fight Right, I mean, that was designed to truly cover, separated from the main body, complete independent operations to allow, you know, the core commander the the time and space to organize uh, behind it. If you remember the divisional cavalry squadrons at at the time, late '80s, only Bradley. Right, so we 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 go to follow, we go to fight a lesser threat. Right, we go to we go to take on you know the Great Patriotic War, Desert Storm. And what do we do in the desert? We take all of our divisional cavalry squadrons and, and change them to the regimental design minus the minus the 109 battery, but you had your own two air troops plus the AVM troop, right? So again, an 05 level commanded organization, three ground cav troops as described, two, uh, two air troops of various, you know, uh, you know uh, ages of, of helicopters, right? Cobra, OH-58, then OH-58 Delta armed, and then Kyle Warrior, right, as, as, we, as we matured that formation. But that ability to, to fight, and then this ongoing debate of fight or stealth still continues today, right? And so that, that's when you look at the evolution of that in the, you know, kind of the 1980s, 90s, I think is, is really dramatic for our Army. So, you know, the other thing that, and we, from a doctoral standpoint, kind of talk about this strategic set in, as a context for what we emphasize is important. But so, regardless of how the battles might have been conducted, I mean, they were never conducted, so we don't know, but you're still conducting the defense. And so, those robust cavalry organizations were buying time for our brigade to get out of the motor pool and get to our hide positions where we could prepare for a counterattack along the movement corridors. And so those guys in those cavalry outfits, whether it was the division cavalry or the ACRs, were trying to buy us 24, 48 hours uh, to get set while all, all this other bad stuff's coming down and happening around you. And yet those organizations, when they're actually employed, were not employed for offensive opera or defensive operations. They were found to be extremely effective in offensive operations. And I think our Army right now, we don't plan on fighting any large-scale defenses anywhere, right? Um, the strategic context is if we have to fight LISCO, we probably are going to shade towards offensive operations, um, which kind of puts us in the same boat, but we don't have that, those capabilities to draw upon that had been trained over decades. Yeah, what I, what I really find... What I really find interesting about all this is that, you know, back then the debate was, does the brigade commander need his own reconnaissance and security element, right? Right. Because the corps commander had one. Right. The division commander had one. Right. 
the brigade did not. So the brigade commander would raid the scout platoons of, right. you know, the the battalions, and, and then we would do these weird. We'd build these counter reconnaissance, op, you know, organizations out of hide at the at the brigade level where we piecemeal combat power out of the battalions. And today we've got this exact opposite problem. We've got this very large formation in the BCT, but our our division and corps commanders have nothing. And I, you just that Nate, that's your history project, right? Had had we end up at that crazy ass solution, right? I mean, it just doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense, other than we went away from our belief we were going to have to fight large scale combat operations. Right. I think that's the decisive factor in the whole in the whole equation because i mean it was as late as 2000 we were still 2001 we were still playing around with divcav organizations and i mean almost every year well, we the, looked at the, the move to baghdad right three id i mean that's three that's seven K. then lieutenant right. lieutenant colonel now lieutenant general terry farrell right i mean right. fights three seven cav as you know conducting his own reconnaissance in many ways a route reconnaissance forward of the main body and does that all the way up into the Karbala Gap, right? I mean, just a long mission that but that organization fought, right? And that and it could it was purpose built to not only fight for information but to shape the battlefield and delay the main body commander from having to commit his main body forces. And that's and that's exactly what you know Colonel Farrell does that whole time. So that's one of the historical uh, ironies here. 3-7 CAV has the most magnificent display of DivCAV doing its job in, in the march to Baghdad. Within two years, every DivCAV in the Army is liquidated right. and turned into BCTs. And, and it's based off a, a different theory of, of action for how to fight, right? Dispersed BCTs uh, with more capability, faster warfare, which um, needs to be reexamined, right? And I think the Army's in the process of, of that... Uh, you know, I guess we could associate that with Donald Secretary Rumsfeld and his his kind of approach to warfare. Um, and you know, you guys have done capability gap studies that have validated that this, this is a gap. Yeah, I mean, the bigger picture, you fit that in. I mean, if the Army's is, and we've talked about this on these podcasts before, but if you say that the Army is whatever it is now, four hundred eighty-five, four hundred ninety thousand people, it's the same size as it was before the war started or the war started in Afghanistan and Iraq, more or less, but it's a very different army. Um, I mean, not just in terms of cavalry, but in, in all kinds of functions. And some of those other things would affect, some of those other gaps you mentioned would affect our ability to employ cavalry formations now. I mean, you couldn't just build them and not account for all the other things that, that would have to enable them during operations. So I guess we're actually kind of moving pretty quickly through through the history of a lot of this and it's a rare opportunity to have somebody who sits down at the schoolhouse who is preparing and thinking about the modernization of of cavalry formations and reconnaissance and security operations to have you here sir is how do you see this emerging or how do you see the training of, of young scouts emerging down at the schoolhouse? And then also, what is the modernization plan? How are we accounting for some of these capabilities that we've lost over the past two decades? Is, you know, me looking at it personally as a former Div Cap girl, this, it, it's a hole that we've lost. Well, first of all, I, I think the Army agrees with you, right? We've, we've, we've lost this uh, capability and we need it back. 
especially at the division level. And so if you look at all the warfighters over the past three years or so, virtually every division commander has built a reconnaissance and security element to use at the division level. They built it at a, you know, at a hide, just pulled it up, developed it, and then, and then fought it. Of course, the problem is they're, they're not, they're not you know, optimized for the mission. They haven't trained, you know, if they were, if they were humans instead of electrons, right, they, they wouldn't have trained for the mission, right? They're, they're manned mostly by 11 and 19 kilo, 11 series and 19 kilos, not 19 deltas. And so we've you know, built these organizations. And then you try to incorporate aviation uh, with it, it makes it even harder, right? And so these are the these are the habitual relationships that that the humanity of it is critical, right? So the relationships of the the soldiers on the ground, training the mission set, understanding the mission set, growing up in that mission set, and then being able to fight those missions, you, you can't just put that together on the fly. And I think as an army, we've realized that. So we're looking at we've already put the force design update in for the reestablishment of the divisional cavalry squadron. It'll have landing spots in it for uh, the updated uh, technologies that we can spiral into those formations. All of the, you know, semi-autonomous robotic systems that we know we're, we're going to want to have, right? And so, you know, not to get to the, the prior, you know, the, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the series of firsts that we have with the striker brigade, but, you know, we, we intend to make first contact unmanned, right? We, we, that's what we want to do. Um, so you need to have those unmanned formations inside your reconnaissance and security elements. And so we're going to have, we're going to have space for that. Now that'll be a, you know, that's a good size organization, uh, for the division commander. It, it will not have organic aviation, but we will have habitual relationships, uh, with the, uh, armor reconnaissance squadron in the combined arms uh, or the, uh, combat aviation brigade. You know, Dave Francis and I, matter of fact, we just talked about that. Uh, this morning, right? But how we've got to get after that element? There is no appetite army-wide to build the the air ground teams that we had uh, prior to 2004 or five when we disbanded the divisional cavalry. Uh, I think in a perfect world we'd put them back together. It's just it, it is just a very very difficult uh, you know cultural thing now to rebuild those organizations. But what we'll lose through that, and and for the fact that we don't have simpler airframes anymore. But you know, I can remember being at Hohenfels as the Alpha Troop Commander of 1-1 Cav, the 1st Armored Division's div, uh, Divisional Cavalry, and having Jimmy Blackman, who was the Desperado Troop Commander, land uh, you know, right, near my, uh, right near my tank, and both he and I talking on the ground about how the fight was developing. Right? Two young punk captains you know, kind of doing that because we, we had that personal relationship and we had that, we had that understanding of how the, how the fight was going to go. So that's, you know, that's on a relationship piece that, that I think we need to get back to. And so it'll, it'll, the habitual relationship will have to be deep and we'll have to train to it. But then at the brigade level, so then you're saying, okay, where are you going to get that extra, you know, all that extra combat power from? Well, we're going to go in and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna change the reconnaissance and security element inside the BCT. And so we're looking at taking what is currently the, the, the BCT's CAV squadrons and moving those uh, to a CAV troop. Now, this is not your, you know, your uncle's BRT, right? This is not going back to what was, you know, a, 
a reconnaissance surveillance target acquisition capability for the brigade commander. Uh, this will be a like-built, uh, you know, divisional cav troop resident inside the BCT. So the most uh, combat-capable organization inside the BCT will be that uh, that brigade uh, cavalry troop. And again, it's a landing spot for for where we can spiral in some of the technologies, and we'll have to experiment with that over time to make sure we get that organization right, because we don't know if that's the right organization. Do you? You know, do you have robotic wingmen inside the platoons, or do you build a separate platoon for robots and then and then operate it? And we're going to learn that because uh, we're we're hoping to pilot this starting this summer on the heavy side, and then we're looking at the same thing. We look at our light uh, brigades. First off, we're really looking deeply at the at the IBCT as a viable structure. Um, you know, the challenge with the IBCT is it's got almost as much rolling stock as an ABCT, so it's it's not this, you know, it's not it's not Seventh ID, nineteen eighty five, where they can get on a you know a small number of aircraft and fly somewhere and be a, you know, presence on the ground and you know complex terrain and be be effective. Um, it's not a strategically nimble outfit. So we're looking at how do we? And by the way, the only organizations in the IBCT that walk to work, the rifle companies. Everybody else has a ride, right? Like the assistant S two has got his own Humvee, right? You know, make make that gal walk, right? I mean, we, we gotta gotta figure that out. But so we're looking at how do you fully motorize, and then how do you get back to a really light organization, and then same same deal. How do we how do we use those structures to reconstitute divisional uh, cavalry, divisional reconnaissance capability at the uh, at the division level, while you still maintain a a reconnaissance capability inside the BCT. Right, that that will be we're looking at an 11 series reconnaissance company inside the BCT as we move forward. We're still playing with that with that design, uh, but again, it's it's we we viscerally feel the lack of the reconnaissance and security element at the division level, and we're moving forward to fix it. So I think this is probably going to take some time, really, to get fully integrated into the army and into the force structure. And the question becomes, if you're, if you're in this position now and you're on a division staff or you're in a core staff and you're looking at how do I prepare myself for the next warfighter that's going to kick me in the teeth, what are some things that we're starting to see organizations doing to bridge the gap and, and what kind of mitigations are they putting in place to be able to get them through the time period until we can bring, thank God we can bring DivCav back? <laughs> well, I mean, I was here when I first got here to Fort Fortress Leavenworth, I think it was the Big Red One, just down the, down the highway, um, was preparing to do a warfighter. Uh, and the division commander at the time uh, took it upon himself to reconstitute a DivCav-like formation. So they task-organized uh, one of the, the uh, cavalry squadrons from the BCTs. They gave it engineers, uh, artillery, uh, tried to establish some during training at home stations, some habitual relationships uh, with the aviation and sustainment community because, again, our sustainment was modular at the time and, and pretty thin on the ground, and yet I needed to have this formation that could fight out in front. You know, how do I address things? And who fights that organization? Is it a BCT because they're in front of the BCT? Or is it a division staff fighting? If the division staff fighting it, who's, who on the division staff is fighting it? Um, and who exactly are they working for? Who's giving them their marching orders? Uh, so the CG there um, 
was was wrestling with that and and uh, and had enjoyed some success in that warfighter. I want to say it was in 2016, uh, early 2017. Uh, and what was interesting was that uh, he actually ran into some uh, pushback uh, from some folks that, in terms of what are you doing to the uh, this modular force? That's not how we were designed to fight. You know, you know who said it was okay. To do that, and because this is a warfighter, not an experiment, uh, it's not a war game for you to, to to do those kinds of things. Now we're long past that culturally, because it, I think every warfighter since then, uh, folks have been doing that. And I think it was more pushback about you didn't tell me you were doing that ahead of time than anything else. Uh, but we had changed our scenarios, and so the scenarios were different. They were Lisco scenarios. Uh, so I, I'll let. Uh, both Nate and, and General Tonoho talk about the specifics, but I mean, a, a lot of the things that they had to, to do out of hide to task organize from a doctrinal standpoint, uh, it was more than just figuring out what was going to fit into it. How do you build that team before you show up for the training event uh, or the combat operation? Yeah, I go back to my comment I made earlier, right? right. I mean, it's, it's easier to move the electrons around for a warfighter than it is to actually build the organization and fight the organization. Absolutely. Right, and then to have staffs at Echelon who understand how to employ it, you know, how to resource it. I, I had a great discussion with uh, Major General Rodney Fogg at at, uh, at CASCOM right before Lee about how we're going to sustain divisional cavalry, right? Because that I mean he's he's concerned about that, right? Because that's a different way of operating for our logisticians, right? Who has the responsibility to to sustain the divisional cavalry squadron in a guard mission? across the frontage of the division, right? And that's it's a different way of operating than we've operated in 20 years. And so... Risk is very different. Absolutely, right? And so the, the, we're going to have to look across the whole piece. Because this also goes back, right, to this whole discussion of DivRT, right? Right. We established DivRTs five years ago now, mm-hmm. um, but they're unencumbered. And so if you go back to the division as the unit of action, then you... Imp- you, you give the capabilities required to fight the division to the division commander. You provide that division commander a cavalry squadron. Do you now re-encumber the divarty, meaning do you take the artillery out of the BCTs? And so one of our you know, fundamentals of reconnaissance is you don't leave reconnaissance in reserve. One of the fundamentals of artillery, you don't leave artillery in reserve. Right now, if you employ the division two up and one back, unless you make a conscious decision to pull that artillery battalion out of its organic BCT, uh, you're by definition leaving a third of your artillery in reserve. So we're violating our own, our own principles by the way we're organized. Worked well in wide area security. Does not work in large-scale combat operations. Yeah, you're reminding me, sir, I showed my students at uh, CGSC uh, an org chart of 7th Corps in the Gulf War. Four artillery brigades, an ACR, and a div cap for every uh, four, ar- four mechanized or armored divisions. And so it's that ability to pool artillery and then mass fires ahead of these recon guys who need it uh, to do their job. And you can trace that back to World War II. Where that was the real Army specialty, was pooling artillery uh, at the core and even field army level. Well, we don't keep intel in reserve either, right? So there's three things we don't keep in reserve. Um, and while 
cavalry formations are not intelligence organizations. They're certainly collecting information that intelligence professionals um, turn into actionable either combat information or intelligence. Um, and that's when, when people get into the whole discussion about where does it, where does it fit in the warfighting function? Well, cavalry's movement and maneuver. Well, okay. But their mission sets are about enabling situational awareness and then friendly decision-making. Um, and so you could make the same argument about the, the BCT, RNS, or cavalry squadrons, uh, if you're two up, one back, then one of those is in reserve as well. And that's not really helping the division commander much. Uh, sir, I just want to add, uh, I, I really liked what you said about uh, first contact with the unmanned systems because as we talk about DivCav, I think we're all reaching back conceptually to the, the 80s and 90s, the, the late Cold War DivCavs. Um, but we have to remember the context. Maybe we call that the golden age. The golden age, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have to remember they were doctrinally designed to fight behind the ACR, right? They're not the first. They can be, but they weren't really designed to be the first contact element. And you could argue whether they had the, the ability to, to handle that burden, which is why the Army, the planners there, realize, okay, we need a full ACR uh, as the first contact force. And so that... That's what I was going to ask. What is, how are we mitigating this then? If we just have a, a ground cav squadron that may now be the, the lead kind of into the enemy disruption area or something like that, um, doing the full weight of the counter recon fight, uh, and that's, that's perfect. That's a way to kind of expand its capability. Yeah, and I, and I think there's this really rich discussion, and, that, and to be honest with you, I'm not sure what side of the discussion I'm on yet. That the reason you don't need the armored cavalry regiment for the corps commander is because you have this, you know, explosion of unmanned systems, mainly aerial, but you have this you have this very very robust, you know, UAS capability now, not only in the United States Army but in the Air Force, and we have space space based assets right that that can help us see forward of the core, and can you use the all the UAS capability you've got. To, and tied back to fires, both both uh, Air Force fires and, and our own. Can you use that then to to shape the enemy, uh, either in the offense or the defense, forward of the division, you know, forward of your lead divisions, right? And then your divisional cavalry squadron and then become that that first element uh, that's going to make kind of ground on ground contact. I still think in the ground on ground contact, you want that first contact to be unmanned, and you want that to be unmanned ground systems, right? And I think I think we want to see uh, those ground cavalry uh, troops uh, to have both both uh, unmanned air systems and unmanned ground systems inside inside them, so that they can expand um, what they can see and what they can do. My my concern my concern with this though is when you look at the capabilities of our UASs. First off, they're very, very technical in nature, and they're they're also <laughs> very narrow in view. And so, what a manned pilot, what a manned system on the ground gives you, is the broader view, the the context, the you know the the wide angle view of the world, where even our even our latest uh, unmanned assets that we get are still very narrow in view. And so to be able to give the context of what is occurring forward of you is, is challenged. But it's also only the task of, you know, it's, it's, that, it's that task of surveillance rather than 
reconnaissance, right? What reconnaissance gives you is not only the surveillance aspect of it, but when we make contact, we, we can determine the, the will of the enemy, right? We can determine more about the enemy and their willingness to fight, their intentions, you know, more than you can ever do with an air-based, air-breathing or space-based surveillance asset. And that's what I think we, we lose by not having the, the formation uh, capable of doing that. Well, I think you lose security too. So if you want to make an argument, someone wants to have a theological argument that I can do surveillance aggressively enough that it equates to some level of reconnaissance, okay, I'm not going to get bogged down in that conversation. But what you're saying is your security is entirely based upon the employment of joint capabilities at that point or army fires. Uh, but it's your security coming, depending almost entirely upon indirect fires or joint fires of some flavor, as opposed to something that the commander on the ground actually controls in terms of direct fire capabilities. Um, hey, hey, Rich, just to kind of pull that thread a little, because I think there's this, also this other problem in our army today, and you hear it in you hear it in every discussion, where very very quickly we will we will devolve into a discussion of warfare as a targeting exercise. Exactly. And, and that, that is, first of all, it's, it's wrong, right? right? Warfare is much broader than just uh, analyzing a, ser- a target list and, and applying fires right. against that target list. And that's, that's why we need organizations to fight on the ground to determine you know, what the enemy is willing and capable of doing, much more so than just, hey, I, I'm going to take out these six targets and then, and then the will of the enemy will collapse and we'll be, we'll be off and run into the, to victory. Well, and so we grew up in an army where if your commander asks, is the success of your course of action based on uh, the availability of air power, right, or joint capabilities? And if your answer was yes, then they told you that's not a good plan. Um, because those are not all weather. Uh, there's environmental things or pr- different priorities somewhere other than where you happen to be operating on the ground that may make those unavailable right when you need them the most. I would tell you that my perception is the uh, Army senior leaders like yourself, but, but even more senior at the strategic level, <laughs> they, they all understand this. Um, and so it's about how much risk we're willing to accept. So we had a we, the Army, uh, hosted by Third Corps in the summer of 2018 at Fort Hood, had a, a reconnaissance and, and security summit. And as many of the serving division commanders as were available uh, showed up for it. Uh, all three Corps commanders participated either live or virtually, as did uh, some of the theater Army commanders. Um, and then a whole host of uh, 06s, 05s, subject matter experts and RNS cavalry type things. Um, and they divided up into three working groups to, to figure out from each of the different core perspectives what, what should the Army do to fill this gap. And um, it was interesting in that each core, because the core's orientation in terms of supporting the geographical combatant commanders and the theaters that they're most likely to operate, they all came up with different solutions. Um, but the guidance was that whatever solutions you came up to had to be resource neutral for the Army. In other words, we could not add end strength, 
and you can't assume that we're feeling any fancy new stuff. We'll field fancy new stuff at some point, but that's not decisive to your course of action. So with the Army you have, how would you recommend reorganizing the different capabilities? And they were wildly different in some cases. So three Corps came up with solutions that were very reminiscent of the golden age, as you, as you talked about, because it's a, you know, America's hammer, it's a, it's a heavy core. Um, First Corps um, had a different view because they were Indo-PACOM, but uh, they're not looking at Warsaw Pact-sized uh, armored hosts banging into each other uh, in, in a land-dominated theater of operations. So they had a different view. And the 18th Airborne Corps kind of had a, a hybrid between the two. And this is with no collaboration between the groups. Uh, and so what came out of that um, was, okay, we, we're all going to agree that we're not in 100% agreement, but I think that's where the impetus for uh, addressing the problem from a division level made more sense than trying to account for the core because of the resource constraints. When you just run the numbers, you can fix 18 divisions, that problem, but you're not going to be able to fix the division problem and the core problem, so where do we accept risk? And I think the consensus was, at least that was my read coming out of the conference, was that we were going to accept risk at the core level because of those national uh, joint um, and essentially multi-domain capabilities could mitigate that risk down, um, particularly during offensive operations. I don't know what feedback you got from, from that kind of stuff, but uh, at least it showed the Army was making an honest attempt at looking at the problem. Yeah. So first off, I, I think you know this this current uh, th trend of thought that the Pacific is not going to need large formations is is wrongheaded. Agreed. I mean, um, you know, watch you know the United States Marine Corps. You know, hey, we're going to divest M1 tanks and go go find any picture of the Marine Corps operating on an island in the Second World War. There's a tank in the picture, right? And and so. The, the requirement for survivable mobile protected firepower that can deliver lethality in support of infantry at close range uh, to the enemy in a very lethal environment exists on the island of Okinawa, right? Exists on the island of Taiwan. Exists if we had to go back and retake the Philippines like we had to do in 44-45. To, to, to walk away from a discussion of fighting a peer competitor in the Pacific uh, without large, you know, armored brigade combat team, armored division structures is, is nothing short of madness. You look at how the Chinese are organizing, it's, it's, not, it's not a million guys with pitchforks. It's, right. it's tanks and infantry fighting vehicles, you know, self-propelled artillery, and they're, and they're gaining the capability, they're building they're building naval cap capacity faster than Kaiser's Germany, right? Right. And so they're, they want to get that capability forward to somewhere, right? Right. We, if we design a force of light infantry to go combat that threat, we're going to be sad. Right. So I think in kind of perfect segue, sir, of talking about how are we looking towards the future of multi-domain operations and looking at the various domains that we could be fighting in? If the maritime dominant domain of the Pacific is, is there and waiting for us for a potential battlefield, well, how are we getting our forces to those fights? Because we are, we're really contained by a tyranny of distance. 
And that is something right now as we go through FM30 and looking at this this capability that we're we want but we don't necessarily have. How are we gonna? How do we bridge that gap right now, especially as it applies to theater opening, force movement, all of those other things that, that get us into the fight, get our reconnaissance forces forward? Yeah. So Nikki, first off, the Princess Bride would rec- would you know remind you that to fight a land war in Asia is the ultimate of stupidity, right? So I, I don't think we want to to design our army to go fight you know, to liberate Shanghai, right? I mean, that's probably not what we want to do. But we may want to operate in support of another land-based ally on the mainland of Asia, right? I mean, you think Thailand, you think, I mean, you, you could you walk through a series of, of uh, places we may want to ha- have some capacity to support a, an ally or a partner. But then if, if you really think about the tyranny of distance and our ability to project power using naval assets, because that's, you're not going to project significant power with air, right? I mean, you're not going to land power. You can't, you can't load up the, the third core on C-17s, right? You just break the C-17 fleet doing it, right? And it would, it would take you forever anyway to get it there. You might as well put them on boats and get them there. So we, we need a Navy that can do that, right? We need a Navy that can control the sea lanes, that can project American power, uh, because uh, when we think about what the, what the Chinese are doing, uh, they're they're building a navy and an army to project power, both on land and into the maritime domain, to seize land in the maritime domain. Right. So we've got to be able to contest that, and so that's the kind of power projection we need. By the way, it's the kind of power projection we have. You know, but the sad part is watching the Marine Corps kind of step back from the capacity to really, without army support, be able to uh, contest uh, the Chinese. Uh, toe for toe, if they ever had to, and and then to rely on you know you know one one marine I heard talking about a JLTV with a box of you know precision rockets on it was going to be able to turn back the you know some large armored formation. We we know that to be a false promise. We we know it. I mean, we find it out in every never you know in every war. Hey, we're going to know everything about the demand. We're going to be able to precisely strike. And therefore, we'll never come and we won't need this capacity to close with and destroy the enemy. It is, it is, it is, it is old wine and new skins in every argument. And so, to to pray to the false god of precision strike is is to sacrifice American men and women in the future. It is just it's wrongheaded. We shouldn't do it. And so, we've got to be able to then project that kind of power, and we've got to invest in it. The yeah, you know, we talk about the Pacific as a maritime domain. Seven of the largest ten armies in the world are in the Pacific, right? It is. It is. There are large land masses. You know, the archipelago of Indonesia includes the island of Java. It's. I think the French word "frickin'" really big, right? I mean, it's. It, it, these are sizable pieces of terrain. Luzon, Leyte, big pieces of ground that will take that will consume large army forces to defend them and we got to be ready to do that and so and we shouldn't let shouldn't we shouldn't let other services dominate the argument of who gets to say how you're going to how you're going to fight in that environment because we've seen it i'll tell you if you ever want to study a great campaign so nate I'll, I'll i'll stand by for your dissertation on the on the on the eighth on the eighth army's campaign to liberate the philippines in 1945 right so january to you know, April 45 is fascinating. You know, things called engineer special brigades designed to amphibiously lift 
entire divisions. I mean, incredible. And we, we don't have that capacity today. We, we may need to think about how we would do that. How would we fight uh, in an archipelago uh, with a peer threat? So, sir, I'll, I'll see your 8th Army and raise you the U.S. 6th Army. Uh, and I've offered Kruger, a, that bastard. Mr. <laughs> uh, Mr. Creed that this is the ultimate MDO case study. Their movement from the Papua New Guinea into the initial Philippines and how they, the infantry and the armor was creating uh, the next airfield to extend the operational reach. And you could translate directly to a ground-based missile uh, approach now with infantry and armor, right? All the, all the chess pieces on the board working together. And, so that's that's the case study for MDO. Nate, I'm, I'm with you wholeheartedly. I think again, demonstrating why Nate is one of the two smartest majors currently in the Army, right? Amos Fox. That's right. Being a, a close equal, but I'd like to see him fight the two of them. The uh, but no, I, I agree with you, right? So it's all about it's all about seizing land to shape the air and maritime domains, and and then again, when you think about today, you know, we we were doing cyber type effects at the time, right? We're listening to their, you know, the Japanese radio nets. We're jamming them when we want to. We're determining their, their, their disposition by watching them, uh, by watching their electromagnetic spectrum. We're using space for long-range communications, right? Bouncing, bouncing AM radio waves off the troposphere or stratosphere or something sphere, right? And then we're, we're doing long-range reconnaissance, which, you know, today we do that by satellites. Then we were doing it with B-24s and B-29s with cameras, right? And so... It, absolutely, and it was. And, and by the way, the whole movement into the Philippines is all designed to cut Japan off from the from the, their uh, you know uh, oil supplies and, and other commodities that are down in, in you know modern day Indonesia, then the Dutch East Indies, and so that's all about shaping the the maritime and air domains by seizing land. It's same thing we got to do, right? So yeah, MDO before MDO was cool. When you think about the threats, so. Long-range precision surface-to-surface fires from the threat. What was that in the Second World War, at least in the Pacific? That's kamikazes, right? They are precision munitions flown by a, a brain uh, that's acting as a computer in the pilot seat, right? Uh, and, and a lot of that, that campaign was about removing their ability to launch those capabilities. Um, but there's an RNS component to those fights, and as General Rainey likes to remind us, you know, once you get on land, Big landmass, small landmass, doesn't matter. It's, it's a, it becomes a land fight. And you're not going to conduct it without the enablers, particularly the sustainment that's, that, that uh, maritime and, and air forces are going to provide, or the ISR that cyberspace and space provide. But, uh, you know, we talk about going to take stuff back, but we also have obligations. You know, we prefer not to have to take it back. It would be nice to be able to hold what you got. You know, those are decisions way above, you know, a service level. Um, but there's some thinking that probably ought to go into the ramifications of, you talked about seven of the ten largest armies. I think six of our seven go-to-war treaty obligations are in the Pacific, too, or six of eight, but a lot of them bilateral relationships that if you are attacked by an external aggressor, then we're going to come to your aid. Um, that wasn't really something we had to worry about for a really long time. Nobody really thought the Soviets were going to come out of Vladivostok and uh, you know, invade Hokkaido or anything like that. Not really. Um, but that's kind of changed now based on what General Donahoe already laid out. And so... Um, and, and again, I think our, our capability 
to support allies and partners in the Indo-Pacific region is one of the critical components of deterrence. Absolutely. And so you know, we may not ever want or have to do it, but the, the capability to do it is, is a significant deterrent effect right. uh, to bad behavior by you pick the nation uh, of your choice. And we still got Korea out there, by the way. Oh, absolutely. I just left I it. I mean, yeah, absolutely. So uh, if we think that any fight with a peer adversary is going to be restrained to one narrow part of a joint operations area, that would be a significant error in judgment as well, I think. Um, people will take advantage of a fight between us and one party to maybe start a fight on more favorable terms with another. So, gentlemen, when it comes to because I'm thinking about now somewhere out there in the ethosphere is a young squadron commander who is either a preparing an organization to go on to Pacific Pathways or he's heading to Atlantic Resolve or she's getting ready to rotate onto Peninsula. Um, those squadron commanders, what is something that they need to be thinking about as they're getting ready for some of these, these significant issues that they're going to face and during competition, the competition phase, of, uh, of operations or the competition um, context of operations that we're doing now, what would you what would be your advice to them? I think it'd be, I think it'd be pretty simple. They they should they should endeavor to train their organization to be able to do a moving flank guard at night. Right. I mean, if we think the the capstone of readiness at the at the battalion level are company team live fires at night, I think in the in the cavalry squadron. That's an organization that if they can get to the training uh, level where their troop commanders fully understand what they need to do for the threefold mission, then we'll be in a good spot. Where you talk to a lot of young cavalry troop commanders today, and you say, "Hey, hey you gotta, you're gonna, you're gonna be the threefold mission for the moving flank guard for the squadron." They they would look at you like you have a, you know, a pole growing out of your head because they would be like, "What are you talking about?" Right? And so we've got to we've got to get back to that level of training uh, for our for our cavalry formations, so that we we understand uh, the reconnaissance and security demands of large scale combat operations uh, in support of our higher you know higher headquarters, right? and that's something we 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 do not own at the visceral level right now in the army. Well, only a slightly less specialized, and we talked about this this morning over. Uh over the course that General Donahoe and I were attending, um, I would throw in there, because of the nature of rotational forces and where we tend to rotate people through, I would think in terms of either as a screen uh, or a covering for a guard uh, mission, but conducting retrograde, uh, some form of the retrograde defense at night in Mop 4. Yeah, no, um, I agree. And, and so when we had people that were doing that full-time like you were in the 80s and 90s, yeah. that, that, that was still what I, what tough. I like about What I like about moving flank guard for, right. for a cavalry squadron, you got you to, every one of your troops has to master zone reconnaissance. Yeah. Every one of your troops has to master route reconnaissance, and every one of them needs to be, be able to conduct a moving flank screen. Mm -hmm. Right, so that's a, that, if you, because you never know which troop you're gonna have to, you know, put into the threefold, and then who's the other two uh, conducting moving flank screen. You know, that becomes, you know, the, the driver, right? So, you know, a lot of brigade combat teams out there go, hey, I'm, I'm going to focus on movement to contact because that forces me to train all the necessary tactical tasks that will 
allow me to be successful in the attack or the defense. You could argue, but that's what I like about moving the flank guard for a for a cavalry organization at, at the at the O five level. I think it goes without saying that when we talk about this and we talk about squadrons, aviation doesn't get a pass on this one. It's the same thing that applies to them as squadron commanders and troop commanders as well. And it's something, again, that brings us back to air ground operations, to integration of aviation capabilities, both the manned and unmanned side of it, that, that aviation has sorely craved to get to, but due to modularity, sometimes we're not able to fight. I, it can't be stated enough, sir, that I think aviation's gonna have to take a long, hard look, especially if we wanna get back to the level of integration that we had when we were good old-fashioned DivCav with, with Kiowa Warriors and, and our friends over on the ground side. Yeah, you're gonna have to get low. You're gonna have to get fast. You're gonna you're gonna have to get out of you know. You, every time every time a pilot says air weapon steam, you need to tase them, right? I mean, you just I mean, we got to get out of that mindset. You know, again, I, we've got to make a cognitive break with our experience, right? So this the coin experience that we've all been through in the last 20 years. I mean, they, there's some real goodness that's come out of that. The army the army today is a much better army than it was 20 years ago. We got. You, you walk around the army, people know what it's like to be shot at. That's something you didn't have in the army in 1989. Right? They knew how they were going to react when some loud explosion went off near them. Right? They knew their own capacity for to you know operate in you know incredible fear. Right? That you can't train that. You can all this other stuff we can train, but, but to do so we've got to get east of the Vistula and north of the Han. We've got to make this cognitive break with this. Middle Eastern experience that we've got, greater Middle Eastern experience that we've got. And I agree with the, the other thing that we would add is there's a, we don't want the old guys like us um, extrapolating all, you know, saying 100% of what we used to do is the exact way to do it. There's operational environments different, the different capabilities we bring to bear. Um, so I think we are familiar with the principles, but our experience executing those things at the company, true. Uh, battery level, yeah, one OE is very different. And now. I think we've got to be careful. We're not talking about going back. Exactly. Right? We're not going back. So right. We're going forward. We're we're, we're going to reestablish some echelons that we haven't had. Right. But in a in a small period of time, but it's those formations are going to be better, different, more lethal, more capable, right? And we need leaders and soldiers to man those formations that are better, more lethal, more capable. It's not going back. Well, and it's important to say that, sir, because, you know, it kind of makes us bat guano crazy at times that people say, well, the Army, you know, whoever the Army is, the Army wants to go back to doing something that was more comfortable. Well, people that say that aren't familiar with the Army because the Army was actually very comfortable with what we've been doing since 2003, 2004, because everybody had been doing it. So to say we weren't comfortable with it is untrue. The reason why we need to change and move forward is the world has changed, uh, and the things that the nation is likely to ask the Army to do are different. And that's very different than, than this false narrative of we just want to go back to the old days because it was simpler. There was nothing simpler about it. First, first off, it's a, it's a misimagination of what the old days were. Absolutely. Right. I, I love this narrative, and Nate, you know, you're much more of a historian than anybody in the room, but you, you may disagree with this. I think this narrative that we have that the Army turned its back on counterinsurgency operations with, you know, coming off the coming off the building in Saigon in 1975, I think is is wrong. Right? We stand up JRTC first at Fort Chaffee, all designed as a light, you know, 
a light environment, a counterinsurgency environment, right? We, we published the counter guerrilla manual in 1986. Right? That's, a, that's 11 years after coming out of Vietnam. It's 13 years after the end of combat operations in Vietnam. And it's, it's, a, it's an amalgamation of lessons of Vietnam and the lessons of, of Central and South America. Right? So we're, we never turned our back on it. I mean, we had an entire training structure designed to help us get it. We built units that were not going to be very effective in the full the gap because we knew we were going to fight in other areas of the world, and those right. fights would be very, very different. It's, it's, the, it's the same today. We need to refocus our training effort to get away from the training demands, the, the moral responsibility to prepare soldiers for the combat that we were already planning to send them to do. That, you, you couldn't just train high-intensity conflict and then send guys off to Iraq in 2011 and, and look yourself in the eye, right? Because you weren't helping them, right? We gotta now we've just gotta we, we gotta refocus the the effort, you know. So what I've said recently is, hey, the base document for our doctrine needs to needs to be large scale combat operations focused. The annexes need to continue upgrading what we've learned over the past 20 years, right? But they've still got to be there. We can't can't unlearn those lessons. We've got to keep them and periodically train to them. Uh, when we've when we've mastered the skill sets that we need for for the more existential problem we're seeing, right? Because the army's a, a, you know it's a continuously evolving organization, so that experience at some point is going to be gone. Uh, but we preserve the experience in our doctrine, our training circulars, in our um, our, our training strategies, and and all of those things that uh, are enduring because those mission sets are still enduring. I mean, there's more than a hundred thousand folks out doing those kinds of missions every day, so. Um, we, we aren't walking away from it at all from a doctrinal standpoint, from a, 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 the training resource standpoint, or the training structure. So, gentlemen, really quick, I have one last follow-up question, and I don't want to take too much of your time for it, but there has been a plethora of young folks out there talking about both the the golden years of division cavalry and old yeah, cavalry. Yeah, I, I wouldn't use plethora. I use... <laughs> Veritable cornucopia. <laughs> <laughs> so, who have been some of the, the individuals and what have been some of the articles that you guys have seen recently and where should we turn some of our audience over to so that they can continue this discussion? Because it's as a doctrine writer, I'm skimming quite a bit from, from some of my peers, especially guys like Nate um, and Amos Fox. But there's also other folks out there that are doing some great work. Can you can you illuminate some of the names and some of the ideas that are coming forward? In, yeah, I mean, in so again, I mean, I mean, what what Nate Jennings and, and Amos Fox have been writing, it, I mean, that's they're they're probably two of the guys thinking most clear-eyed about uh, the formations, the doctrine, and the problems that that we face uh, specifically in the. Uh, specifically in this cavalry reconnaissance security uh, piece, but also just more broadly about about warfare. I, I would also tell you that you know, maybe not specific individuals, but I think we need to look what the Australians are, are talking about, right? So there's some great uh, there's some great uh, sites out there on social media, right? So grounded curiosity out of uh, Australia, the uh, uh, the Wavell Room out of out of the UK. I mean, there's some there's some good sites where there's there's an awful lot of real good professional dialogue occurring. And, and I will tell you, I think the other, the other thing that this generation uh, benefits from 
more than you know my generation did at, at a minimum is you know we'd wait every two months for the next you know armor magazine or infantry journal to come out or you know every quarter for military review to come out and then we'd we'd read those you know 10 articles and then we'd go on i mean those rich discussions are occurring every day today right and you're seeing it on all of this uh, on the on the interweb, right, and then you, you can use the Google and go find a bunch of that. Uh, but so you know, social media is more than cat pictures, right? It's more than General Martin's dog man do, right? It's there's a whole bunch of sites out there that are really sharing some some great discussions about what are going on. You know, I live in the I live in the house at Fort Benning that Major General Farnsworth lived in. He was the first general officer to live uh, in that house. He's also the general officer that gave Dwight D. Eisenhower a letter of reprimand for writing an article about the tank infantry team coming out of the First World War. Right? So that's 1919. You know, so I'm constantly reminded when I look at his picture as I walk out my door, don't be that guy. Right? And so the, the, the people who are going to solve the tactical and operational problems that we see today as the Army are, are majors and captains. Right? And that's and sergeant majors and master sergeants that are that are out there right now wrestling uh, with these with these problem sets, and we got to encourage them. And there's there's an incredible rich dialogue occurring that that we should participate in and encourage. I just wanted to add one thing. Uh, so this, as a, as a as we'll say a Parthian shot, uh, this DevCap thing is timely, uh, not just filling an army gap, but this is a joint gap. And as I was listening to you, you mentioned drones and some of the unmanned stuff, that's actually stuff that every service has. Everyone has drones. Everyone can access eyes, high altitude eyeballs. No one else can do forceful and durable recon on the ground. And now the Marines have ceded that ground, right? That, that the Army has, uh, is alone in providing this to a JTF or some other, a COCOM or, or something. So this is, this is wonderful that, that it's being pursued. I just, a joint context is the real value. Well, gentlemen, I think we've barely scratched the surface on cavalry missions organizations and also our future as, as cavalry soldiers. Um, but I think it generates some genuinely awesome maneuver space for us to talk and write about combined arms cavalry and where it goes from here. And I can't thank you all enough for joining us on this discussion today. Well, Nikki and, and Nate, thanks. First off, thanks for what you guys are doing, right? And thanks, thanks for having us, right? And any, any opportunity you get to sit with a national treasure is time well spent. Thanks. Hey, so we really appreciate you taking the time to come up here uh, and, and give us the no kidding what's going on uh, down at Fort Benning uh, and with our the future of our cavalry organization. So thanks a lot for, for spending that. Well, I'll tell you, you're, you're always welcome to come to Fort Benning, right? I mean, that's... That's where the that's where the army does its difficult thinking about brigade and below war fighting. Yes, sir. We talk about the close combat force and how we're gonna how, how everything we just talked about is all about getting the tank infantry team into close combat to devastate a foe, seize its terrain, destroy its force, and control its population. Pose our wheel. When we get down there, perhaps we can work a podcast on uh, how battle captains in the Balkans. Uh, sorted out the complexities of peace enforcement operations. I know you have some experience in that regard. It'd be awesome. I'd love to tell you a story about how I used to screw with the Ready First Brigade from Black Hawk, Maine. Yeah, Roger. I remember those days. All right, sir, thanks.
If you like what you heard, please put your trigger fingers to work and smush that subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform to get new episodes of Breaking Doctrine automatically. Major General Patrick Donahoe is a pretty regular user of Twitter, and you can follow him at Pat Donahoe at Army. While you're at it, you can also follow us at U.S. Army Doctrine. Finally, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official position of the United States Army, the U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command, or the Combined Arms Center. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Nikki Dean, and this has been Breaking Doctrine.